0: On March of last year, there was a woman who was held hostage in a supermarket in southern France during a terrorist attack, and one of the police officers who was there offered to take her place as a hostage. And as the door swung open and she ran out to her freedom, Officer Beltrain was killed on his way in. And when we hear accounts of radical sacrifice like that, they always grip us. Sacrifice grips us. When you think about the films and the stories, the the, the books, the historical things you've read, when you think about uh, music that grips your soul, there is always radical amounts of conflict, radical amounts of pain, radical amounts of sacrifice, radical amounts of love. This morning, as we celebrate this Good Friday. I'm going to be reading excerpts from Mark chapter 14 and 15. You can read these texts in their entirety on your own uh, this afternoon, perhaps, but for for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to be reading excerpts from both of those chapters. This account records the greatest sacrifice in human history, a sacrifice that not only altered human history, but also alters our future. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent two of the disciples and he said to them, go to the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And when he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room and it's furnished and prepared and there made ready for us. So his disciples went out, they came to the city, they found it just as Jesus said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it, and he said to them, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, and they, and they all drank it, and he said to them, this is the, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly I say to you I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives. And when they came to the place which was named Gethsemane he said to his disciples sit here and pray and he took Peter James and John with him and he and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And Jesus said to them my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And now Judas, Jesus' betrayer, had given those with him a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus, and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And when they laid their hands on Jesus, they took him, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him they were assembled, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. He answered nothing. And again, the high priest said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and he said, what further need do we have of any witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus to death. And some of them began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him, and they said to him, prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands. And as soon as it was the morning, the chief priests, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, they led him away, they delivered him to Pilate. And that was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above him on the cross, and it read, The King of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers one on his right side and one on his left, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by, they blasphemed him. They were wagging their heads, and they were saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, who mocking among themselves with the scribes, they said, he saved others. He cannot." himself save let the Christ the king of Israel descend now from the cross that we may see and believe and even those who were crucified with him they reviled him and when the sixth hour had come there was darkness that fell over the whole land until the ninth hour and in the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he said which is translated my God my God why have you forsaken me And some of those who stood by, when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, and they filled a sponge full of sour wine, and they put it on the reed. They offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is God's Word. You know, as a kid, I could never figure out why they called Good Friday Good Friday. It seemed like anything but Good Friday. And of course, I later learned, as we all know, that Good Friday is good for us. And that is the nature of love. Because love is costly. Love is, by nature, oriented away from the self and toward another. Love, by its very nature, is willing to make sure that another benefits at our expense. And if you say that you love somebody, but you demand that they orient their whole life around you, and they orbit around you, and they constantly accommodate you, you don't love them. Because love is, by definition, sacrifice. And Good Friday, it shines a spotlight on God's love for humanity, because God is not a God who crossed his arms and demanded that we make ourselves beautiful for him so he could love us. Our God came and he stretched out his arms on a cross, and his love for us makes us beautiful. And this whole thing is taking place during the Passover. This is a, the Passover meal was commemorating a defining moment in Israel's history when God sent the final plague on Egypt, which was passed on a judgment on everyone. God had sent nine plagues, nine signs. If you study the account in Exodus, you're going to find these are attacks on nine of the ten Egyptian gods. Each plague was specifically an evangelistic campaign. God saying, this God that you worship is not the God. I am the God. I'll prove it to you. I'll kill your God. That's what all nine plagues were. And the tenth plague was God, for the final time, trying to get Jew and Egyptian alike to turn to saving faith in him that the Pharaoh would release his people and the only way to be spared God's judgment was to trust in God's provision. So God provided a sacrifice. Whether you were a Jew, whether you were an Egyptian, anyone who trusted in the sacrifice provided by God would not face the judgment of God. And so God's judgment passed over. So they called that lamb that was to be sacrificed, that first Passover, the Passover lamb. And you would put the blood on the doorposts but then you cooked the meat and you ate it with your family. It was a meal. The Passover was a meal. This is very important. And the reason why this is significant is because you took in the sacrifice. You didn't just acknowledge God's provision in some sort of external way. You actually received God's provision in a personal, internal way. Salvation has always been by faith in God's substitutionary sacrifice. And so the one presiding over the Passover meal would say something like, this is the bread of affliction that was eaten by our fathers in the wilderness. And they said that for generations. And Jesus is presiding over this Passover meal, but then he changes the script. He changes the script that everybody had been using for generations. Imagine the disciples' surprise. Imagine what they would have thought, sitting there, mouthing the words along with Jesus as he breaks the bread, and because they've been hearing this since they were children. Everybody had heard this since they were children, and they're mouthing it along. This is the bread of our affliction was eaten by our fathers, but this is the bread of, a, this is my body. Wait, what? Like when we change the prayer of confession in the liturgy, and you memorize the other one, and then you come to, and you start saying the other words, wait, what? That's what's happening this first Passover meal. Jesus presents himself as the one who will lead humanity on the ultimate exodus from our common enemy. He will lead all those who trust in him from death to life. And every earlier sacrifice was passed over to him and every uh, sin has been passed over to him. And just as that very first Passover was observed the night before God, God brought salvation from death by the blood of a lamb, this Passover meal that we just read is being observed the night before God will bring salvation from eternal death by the blood of Jesus. And there's another thing worth noting about this, and it's that all four gospel accounts record the wine at the table, they record, they mention the bread at the table, but nobody mentions the lamb at the table. And the Passover meal was not a vegetarian dish. Everybody was eating lamb. But it does not mention the lamb, because the gospel writers want all of us to stare at the fact that the real lamb is not on the table. It's at the table. Christ alone, presiding over this ultimate Passover meal. And another thing that is important for us to recognize about what's happening before Christ goes to the cross here is that you would always eat the Passover meal with your family. That's how it was eaten. That's how it was celebrated. You had a big, huge family barbecue. wine. Bread, lamb, turning on the spit. Celebrating your deliverance. You did that with your family. Well, all of the disciples have family. So what's Jesus doing by not having them all go back with their family? What's he doing? He's establishing the basis for his family. He's placing himself at the center of unity for his family. You see, here at this church, what we have in common... It's not our social interests, our economic status, our political leanings. It's not our common education, where we are economically. What binds us together here, church? What we have in common here is Christ alone. He is the purpose for our unity. He is the basis on which we gather. And of course, all of our loving relationship and care for one another flows out of that reality. And Christ places himself at the center. And so then the text moves from this Passover meal to the garden, and here we find Jesus in anguish, and he's surrounded by sleepy disciples. This is an image of the disparaging difference between God's immeasurable generosity and human inadequacy. Here's Jesus about to go to the cross. Have you ever had anybody let you down? And you kind of feel like, you know what? You've let me down and I feel hurt by you and I'm going to distance myself from you. you see, we can get let down by trivial things. Have you ever sat in a coffee shop? You text them, hey, where are you? And they forgot, but they're like, they're in 20. 20 is a fake number. So if anybody ever tells you they're in 20, it just means, oh my goodness, I forgot. And they're getting dressed. They're brushing their teeth. It's what it means. When this happens to us, when people let us down, If they let us down enough times, we're like, you know what? I don't think I could really be that close to you. I can't keep subjecting myself to this kind of emotional pain. How many times can I connect with you and just let you hit me in the face with an emotional hammer? I can't do it. Here's Jesus and he's going to the cross to die for these guys. And they're like, "Ah, go pray. You know, I remember you mentioned something three times. It's the whole son of man dying thing. You go pray about that. I got to just catch a quick 20. That's what's happening here. Jesus wakes up and he goes through with it. We've got this vivid record of the Son of God asking God the Father to change his circumstances. And at the same time, Jesus is not trying to take control of the circumstances. Jesus is trusting the Father with the circumstances. See, his immediate, Jesus' immediate desire is not to endure the cross, but his ultimate desire is to save you and I through the cross, Save us from the finality of death through the cross. So what Jesus does is Jesus submits his immediate desires and he submits to his ultimate desire, to the Father. And so while Jesus, of course, is asking all, for this, he's asking for his friends to stay awake, Judas shows up. And Judas shows up with swords, with a mob. Right? Every, and, and why does this happen? Because everybody's expecting an armed rebellion right? Everybody's expecting an armed rebellion, everybody's expecting violent tactics, everybody's expecting that, you know, he's going to overthrow those in power and bring in a new power, because that's how every historical revolution has gone. At the basis of every historical revolution is the exact same thing, they leave the exact same thing at the top, power and politics. That is world history. So they come with swords for Jesus, because that's how you do revolution. And that's what we've seen since. Uh, That's why Judas brought swords. That's why the other gospel accounts show the first thing Peter does is he reaches for his sword. That's why Jesus heals the man that Peter attacks and says, put away your sword. Because the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is nothing like any other kingdom. Jesus is a king like no other king. The kingdom that that Jesus is bringing was not just swapping out the current people in power. That's not the kingdom of God. He's not putting his disciples in power. That's not what he's doing. The cross reveals this king of majesty and meekness like the world had never seen. Jesus lays down his power. And the cross was the means of of him bringing us into the kingdom and liberating us so we could relate to the kingdom of this world in a whole new way. You know, Augustine said this in in his works, The City of God. He said, the city of God is ruled by the love of God and the city of man is ruled by the love of ruling. And Jesus didn't just come to create another system of loving ruling. And so Jesus comes to deliver us in a final way so we can relate to the kingdoms of this world in a different way. We can relate to money and power and politics in a completely different way because none of those, see, all of those things, money, power, politics, they control the kingdoms of the world. But money, power, politics do not control us. Through the cross, we're we're children of God's kingdom. So we relate to them in a different way. They no longer define us. We don't look to them to save us. They don't give identity to us. They don't give meaning to us. And then this passage moves on from this episode in the garden to the courts. And Jesus is appearing on trial for his life. And he's called to the witness stand. And then the high priest says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer was, I am. And that should sound familiar. From Exodus when God reveals himself as the great I am. So Jesus opens his mouth and he says, I am. But then Jesus says something that causes an emotional, it's so provocative, it causes an emotional explosion. See, the Jews did not believe the Messiah would be divine. They thought he was a human political deliverer. They did not think he was going to be divine. So when Jesus goes on to say, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, every priest in that room knew the Son of Man meant coming from God. Every priest in that room knew the phrase hand of power meant he had divine power to judge. And every priest in that room knew clouds of heaven didn't mean water vapor. It was the Old Testament, Shekinah, glory of God, clouds of glory. So when Jesus says this, the way to understand this is, in other words, Jesus said, while they were standing there judging Jesus... Jesus said, I am the divine judge with the power to judge you. That's how he answered the question. Are you the Messiah? You're on trial right now. And his answer is, you're on trial right now. And so guess what happens? The high priest goes full Hulkamania. He tears his shirt. What are you going to do, brothers? When this guy says he's divine. And, they, and the whole thing, it just it, it goes crazy. They're pun- it's a trial, but they're punching, spitting, yelling, screaming. It—the whole thing stops being a judicial process, and now it's a riot, like this. Because that was his answer. Because Jesus says, "Crown me or king, or king me. Crown me as the Lord, or crucify me as a lunatic." Those are your options. This is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus does. And this is the Jesus that we must grapple with today. But it's tr- Now, up to this point, that would be tremendous news for, the, for if I just closed in prayer and we all went home. Jesus Christ is the divine judge. Good luck with your hopes and dreams, and I hope you live a loving life this week. You no, know, that would not be a good, that would not be a very encouraging sermon. What does this divine judge do? Because he is the divine judge. And so what we have to do is, Jesus is forcing us to see the paradox. The judge over the entire world is being judged by the world. And so, from there, the text takes us to the cross. And all four gospel writers make sure we know that it's eerily dark. From 12 p.m. to 3 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it's uncharacteristically dark. It is supernaturally dark. Darkness throughout Scripture is often an image for a sign of God's judgment. So we need to look at where God is pouring out his judgment. And to borrow from Dr. Matz, who's the professor of religion at uh, Grand, uh, Grandview Seminary, he says this God is so for you as your defender, he was willing to be against himself as your accuser. And that's what the divine judge did. He allowed the judgment to be poured out on himself. Chapter 15 and verse 35, Jesus cries out, my God and my God, that's intimacy language, that's covenant language. God said in his covenant, "You, I will be your God, you will be my people. Jesus is crying out, my God. This is a deep personal cry from the cross. You know, if after the sermon today, one of you comes up to me in the hallway and you say, I don't ever want to see you or talk to you again, and you march out, I'm going to be sad. But if Susan comes up to me after a sermon today and says, Paul, I've been thinking about it. I don't ever want to see you, or talk to you again. I will be destroyed. I'll be sad if you say that to me, but you won't destroy me. Susan will destroy me. Because the deeper the love, the deeper the intimacy, the deeper the torment when there's that separation. And that is the picture of Jesus' torment, this eternal intimacy that, is, that he is he's facing. You see... Judgment day means separation from God. Jesus is experiencing. Jesus is taking away your judgment day. That's what's happening on the cross here. And the only way for him to take away your judgment day is for him to experience your judgment day. And he cries out, my God. And maybe at this point you're thinking, you know, I don't like this God of anger. I just want a God of love. Why can't we just have a God of love? Why all this talk of... of, of, you know, of wrath being poured out. Well, I want you to consider this. Because the modern constructs of God is, hey, let's just talk about a God of love. Let's not talk about a God of anger. Well, that's not a loving God. That's a very unloving God. Consider it this way. If you love somebody and they're being hurt, they're being hurt by others or they're hurting themselves, you're going to get angry. If you love them, your love will actually make you angry. At the thing that's hurting them or the person that's hurting them, whatever's causing their life to disintegrate is going to make you angry. And the greater your love for that person, the greater your anger will be towards whatever it is that's causing the disintegration in their life. And so, when we, and and, and the truth is, if you weren't angry, I would say, well, I don't think you love this person. Their life is being destroyed, and you're you're like, you know, you're you're not upset by this. And so, The modern construct of a God that doesn't get angry, the modern construct of a God that doesn't execute judgment on sin and evil, that God is not more loving, that God is unloving, that God is not worthy of worship. The God who in the end says, all of evil and injustice can go free, is not a God worthy of worship, because that's a God of indifference, not a God of love. If you're guilty and the judge bangs the gavel and says, innocent, you're free to go, half the the courtroom goes, he got away with it. And the other half tears their shirts and says, "What what injustice. That's not a God of grace. So our God pours all of his anger, pours all of his judgment on sin on Christ for us. He takes our judgment day. You see... God's law demands that you and I live perfectly, personally, perpetually loving lives. Loving toward him, loving toward our neighbor, and the bad news is you and I are not doing that. You didn't do it this week, next week's not looking good either. We're not doing it. That's the bad news. We love ourselves more than we care to admit. The good news of Good Friday is that God came and he provided for you everything that he requires from you in Jesus Christ. And so, since the beginning when we rejected God in favor of being God, the way to God was closed. But at the cross, it was torn wide open. And that's why the text moves on after the crucifixion of Christ in verse 38 of chapter 15 to say that the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And it was a massive curtain from the top to the bottom. If this divider here at the back of the auditorium was a curtain and we came in on Sunday and it was a solid piece of cloth and it was torn from the top to the bottom we would wonder how in the world that happened. If it was torn from the bottom to the top, it'd be pretty obvious. Somebody came in here and tore it. This veil is torn as a sign for us to remember the direction of God's grace. The direction of God's grace from us is from top to bottom. Christian faith is not an exercise in religious ladder climbing. Where we try and please God by working our way up, salvation is a gift of God's grace. Whereby God came all the way down. The veil was torn all the way down. And that torn veil means that anyone who trusts in Jesus can go into God, find rescuing, renewing, restoring grace. And you know, this passage records the first person who ever did that? Records the first person who just went in and found saving grace and faith of Jesus in that way? It's the Roman centurion. The Roman centurion, presiding over Christ's death on the cross, finds salvation through Christ's death on the cross. He watched Jesus die, and he heard Jesus cry out, and the Roman centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God, and that's a divine claim. And this guy's an unlikely candidate for grace. He's a harsh man, he's a rough man, you don't get to the position of Roman centurion unless you've done some things. The coins jingling in his pocket say, Tiberius Caesar, the divine son of Augustus. In other words, the Romans believed that the emperors were divine. Therefore, this Roman, up until this moment, believed that Caesar was the son of God. But now, in a moment of Christ's death, he abandons everything he has ever believed as he witnesses the death and the cry of Jesus, and he ascribes the term son of God from Caesar, and he ascribes it to Jesus How in the world did that happen? You know the text says, and you read it carefully, the text says that this Roman centurion heard Jesus cry out. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? That intimate language. Despite all the terror happening to Jesus, this man hears the loving tenderness in Jesus, and it saves him. See, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was willing to be separated from the infinite love of his Father because of his infinite love for you. His infinite love for us. Not only did Jesus die the death that we should have died, but he lived the life we should have lived, which means no matter who you are and what you've done, in Jesus Christ, the barrier to God is gone. And there's forgiving grace for you. And there's renewing grace that reforms you. Christ went into our darkness to dispel our darkness. He did it so that he could rescue us from sin and death and rescue us from our misplaced worship in many messiahs that we turn to and orient our lives around in the hopes that they'll fulfill us, in the hopes that they give identity to us, the hopes that they save us and tell us who they are. Jesus fulfills us. Jesus gives identity to us. Jesus saves us. Jesus tells us who we are. We're his. Good Friday is the end. And Easter Sunday is the new beginning. Because of Christ's cross, injustice and suffering in all forms, even death, is just a passing thing now. It's just a passing shadow. United to Christ by grace and faith, there will be beauty and life forever, because the finality of death that would have destroyed you found its death in the cross. Let's pray.